Good afternoon to all my Facebook friends and family. Bill Allen here from West Irwin Church of Christ in downtown Tyler, Texas. Glad to have you joining me today for our Tuesday, Thursday Bible study. Throughout uh, this uh, uh, these last month or two, we've been looking at the book of Colossians. Had similar studies over the last year or so. Can you believe it's been a year since the world kind of changed in our country? Uh, for some, it was even longer ago than that. Uh, but uh, we have been doing this pandemic uh, thing, reality, for over a year now, or about a year now. So we continue to pray for our leaders. We continue to pray for all of those who are especially suffering, all of those who uh, have lost loved ones, those who have loved ones who are ill uh, with this uh, with this disease, and all of those who have been so wonderful about working very hard in very risky situations at times to to try to care for their neighbor. What a blessing uh, you all have been. I'm glad to be able to be with you today as we continue this week looking at Colossians 3, really verses 1 through 17. On Thursday, we'll finish out this section. Uh, began with some thou shalt nots and thou shalts over the last uh, couple of lessons. Uh, and, uh, and so today, I think we're ready to look at this question that is raised uh, in Colossians 3 verse 16 about uh, singing and music in worship. I'm looking forward to sharing some thoughts about that with you. Uh, but I want us to kind of get there first of all. So have a few folks joining in. My friends Larry and Lynn and Cindy and Eric are with us. My cousin Gail is with us. Glad to see your name on there, Gail. And I know others will be joining in either live or later uh, listening in. And so I'm looking forward uh, to sharing this lesson with you. Uh, a, a little bit of background, since it's been several days since we were in Colossians 3, and we're taking our time through this part, especially looking at thou shalt nots and thou shalts. And this lesson kind of continues the thou shalts in a sense, uh, but I wanted us to focus a little bit today on verse 16. But as you know, Colossians 3 starts out uh, with these words, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Uh, looking back to Colossians 2 and the passages there that talk about our dying to, Christ, with, to sin, just as Romans 6 talks about that. And now in chapter 3, it's talking about, as Romans 6 puts it, uh, being raised to live a new life. Romans 3 starts out talking about what that new life looks like. And what it looks like is our focus and our thinking and our direction is on things above, on, on eternal things, not on physical things, temporal things, things of this world, but rather on heavenly things, on spiritual things. And then as we saw um, last uh, couple of weeks there included in this are some is teaching about how we should live. Uh, it's, it's funny to me, having been a preacher now for uh, 43 years or so, uh, for, for, uh, to think of, of people uh, considering that the New Testament doesn't have anything to say about how we should live or how we should worship or the things we should do or the things we shouldn't do. Because they may say, well, that was the old law. The old law has the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots. In the new, in the new covenant, in the new law, we're under grace, not law. And yes, that's right. And, and praise God for that. Because there could never be a law given that we would 
uh, be able to have save us because we would break it at some point or another. And when you break the law in any point, then you're guilty of the whole law. That's what scripture says. That's the nature of law. Uh, as we spoke about from Romans 7 this past Sunday in our Sunday morning worship worship service, a law isn't isn't meant to save anybody. Law is actually meant to shine a light on the lawbreakers uh, for the sake of the society. Um, and so we're not saved by law or by law keeping, but the New Testament does have some guidance to us and some commandments to us about how we should live now that we have died to sin and have been raised to live a new life. What does that look like? Well, in general terms, that new life is focused on things above. It's focused on the eternal things, on the things that last, on the spiritual things, uh, not the physical temporary things of this earth. And so that included some thou shalt nots. That's what the list starts with in, in verse five of Colossians three. It says, put to death, therefore, these kinds of things. It talks about sexual immorality. It talks about greed and materialism. It talks about uh, lying. It talks about uh, uh, slander and gossip. It talks about a, a lot of different things in this list and in other lists like it, such as in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, or uh, other places such as 2 Peter 1 and, and throughout uh, those lists that show up in different places in, in the Word of God. Um, but just as there are thou shalt nots, as we saw last week, the scripture is filled with thou shalts. Christianity is a very positive religion. It's a religion that doesn't just say you shouldn't live like this, but it's also a religion that says you should live like this. Uh, in fact, what Jesus calls uh, the two greatest commandments are both positive thou shalts. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second, like it, you should love your neighbor as yourself. That's Those are very positive uh, commandments. Uh, the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, the core of that law, uh, had thou shalt and thou shalt nots, as you know. Uh, but they were both based on the deliverance that God brought to the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage. And in the same way in the New Testament, uh, this call to live a faithful, obedient life uh, doesn't save us, but rather it is it is what is commanded of us based on the fact that God has sent his son Jesus to shed his blood for us so that we can be saved by the grace and mercy of God through our response of faith, seen in our believing this great message of the gospel, uh, repenting, turning away from our life of sin, changing our direction, basically, and how we live, no longer living for self, but living for God, uh, no longer living for sin, but living for righteousness, uh, as Romans 6 puts it. And, uh, and we believe and we repent, we change our life, we confess that this is what's going on inside of us, in our hearts and in our minds, and then we are baptized into Jesus Christ for forgiveness of our sins. The very first gospel sermon in Acts 2, uh, the people stop and say, what do we do? What do we do? We've killed the Son of God. What do we do? And and Peter tells them, well, you repent uh, and you uh, be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's that consistent message all throughout the book of Acts as we see time and time again, example after example of, of people being brought to the Lord, of being converted to Christ, of responding in faith, of receiving the Lord Jesus, that's how they do it, just as Paul describes it 
in Colossians 2, talking about our receiving the Lord Jesus, letting our faith have its roots in the Word of God and in the life of Christ, and uh, recognizing that uh, this culminates in our uh, being buried with Christ and raised to live a, a different life, a new life, a life that doesn't um, uh, transform us, but a life that is lived that way because of the transformation that's taking place in us, that has taken place in us uh, because of our commitment to Jesus Christ. And so we looked at all these thou shalts, uh, uh, starting in verse 12, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, much like the fruit of the Spirit that we read about in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. Colossians 3:13. bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, verse 14, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And so as this list goes on, it culminates in that call to love and that call that continues uh, talking about living a life of peace and joy. And so as we look at this passage uh, in these last few verses of this section of Colossians 3, we'll finish with Colossians 3 verse 17 on Thursday and that great call that everything we say and everything we do is done out of worship. Uh, out of obedience and, and uh, a desire to honor and reverence the word and will of God. Um, as we get to that point, we, we see these three verses in Colossians 3, verses 14, 15, and 16. It calls us to love, um, and it calls us to be a people of peace, and it calls us uh, to be a people of joy. And that joy is especially seen in how we Sing, sing praises to our God. Colossians 3, verses 14 through 16. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So much there, love, peace, gratitude, humility, uh, joy, uh, singing. Uh, this is the call that we have uh, today. And this passage of scripture is very similar to the one that Paul writes in Ephesians 5. These words this uh, that Paul puts in a, in a very similar letter in Ephesians 5, verses uh, 19 and 20. Um, well, let's start at verse 17. Uh, Therefore, do not be foolish, Ephesians 5, 17, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, sexual immorality. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, spiritual songs, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, very similar to what he says in verse 16 of Colossians 3, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly 
as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts to the Lord. So he's listed these thou shalt nots. He's listed the thou shalts. He's called us to be a people of love. He's called us to be a people of peace. And he's called us to be a people of gratitude and a people of great joy. And so a few scripture passages that we might mention before we make a few comments about this whole subject of, of singing and music and worship and worship assemblies. Uh, read from Ephesians 5 verses 19 through 21. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 15 says, I will sing with the spirit. I will sing with the understanding. One of the interesting things that you'll hear me say this lesson is uh, the context because the context, I believe, is important. And in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, uh, the context is talking about our daily lives, living lives of joy that includes singing uh, and uh, uh, singing songs of praise uh, to God. But also the context calls us to do that as we teach and admonish one another. And in 1 Corinthians 14, the context is clearly, clearly the worship assembly. And in the worship assembly context of 1 Corinthians 14, the call is to sing. In James chapter 5, verse 13, it says, Is anyone uh, sick? They should pray and call the elders to pray for them. And in James 5, verse 13, Is anyone happy? Let them sing psalms. Singing should be a natural response because we're happy. Uh, we'll mention that old great hymn, uh, His Eye is on the Sparrow, but it has a great and wonderful line. Uh, that perhaps is taken directly from that verse in James 5, verse 13. We have some examples and other calls in the New Testament about singing, and primarily I'm thinking of Acts chapter 16. You remember that story, Paul and Silas on Paul's mission journey, his second mission journey. Paul and Silas arrested for doing a good deed for a woman in Philippi in modern-day Greece. And after being beaten and flogged, even though they were Roman citizens and now in, in, uh, in, in jail, uh, they're in jail and it's midnight or so and they're singing. They're singing. It's just an incredible, incredible scene. Because of their joy that the beatings could not take away, that the incarceration could not keep them from feeling, because of that joy that was expressed in singing, uh, the jailer was touched, and when they were all freed because of the power of God, and yet no one left out of concern for uh, this man, the jailer, whose life would have been taken, um, the jailer is ultimately converted. In that very same hour of the night, uh, puts takes them to his house, gives them food, washes their wounds, and he and his family are baptized into Jesus Christ. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful scene, but it really begins with Paul and Silas in jail singing out of hearts of joy. Romans 15 verse 9 and Hebrews 2 verse 12 both quote from the Old Testament talking about how all people, including the Gentiles, will, um, will be called upon to sing these great praises uh, to our great God. And so I want us to see that as kind of the backdrop for all of this. Uh, because I do want to share a few things. I am a member, as I said, of uh, the West Irwin Church of Christ. I've been involved in Churches of Christ since my conversion in uh, March of 1972. My dear friend and preacher, Ron Clayton, who passed away just in the last week or so, his wonderful memorial service was yesterday. Such a great influence on my life and on the lives of so many others has brought so many people 
to the Lord through his efforts directly and through those that he's taught to preach and to teach and to evangelize. Um, at that church, that was a church that didn't have uh, instruments of music during worship. And that was different for me. My mother was used to that background, but I had never been to a church that didn't have uh, an organ. Uh, we went to the Protestant chapel when I was a boy and uh, I sang in the youth choir and Mrs. Beulah Childress played the organ and you couldn't hear any singing. All you heard was the organ, uh, unless the choir was singing and then you could kind of hear them. And I'd been in band. I mean, I'd been in band in junior high and throughout the first year of, of high school. Uh, and I loved music. I loved, uh, I enjoyed singing. I loved to listen to music on the radio. I played a little bit of guitar. I was playing drums in the band. Uh, and so music is a very big deal to me now, just as it was then. And uh, then we visited the Lackland As we were sitting in that auditorium with 300 or so people, and um, I heard the most gorgeous singing in my life. It was like one big choir. I could hear all the parts. I could hear bass, tenor, alto, and soprano. Uh, and it was, it was magnificent. It was beautiful, and it gave me such a thrill uh, to be a part of that. And that night, as I've told you before, I was baptized. My dad was baptized. My sister was baptized. My mother was restored. My brother had already been married and moved away and was not with us. Uh, and it was a great and wonderful blessing. It was a, an incredible day. And uh, my sister and I went to a youth devo that night and did from there, never looked back. And what a beautiful, beautiful history. Not so good, but it's always from the heart. And in churches of Christ, or at least the ones that I. Why is that, Bill? Well, because of scriptures like Colossians 3. text of the worship assembly, Christians are called to sing. And they're called to sing out of joy and love uh, with, a, with a desire uh, to praise our God. So a word or two about singing and instrumental music uh, in worship. And again, I'm not going to come across as being judgmental. I'm going to share with you what I believe scripture teaches. And that's as far as I'm going to go. And I'll be glad to have a discussion with you about this. But this is what I understand scripture to teach. I'm not going to be judgmental. I'm not going to say that everybody who disagrees with me is eternally lost and condemned. That's not my, I'm not in that pay grade. <laughs> That's, you know, God is going to be the ultimate judge. And I believe he's going to judge with great mercy and, uh, and great love. And he's going to look at our hearts. I believe that. Uh, but that doesn't give us permission not to consider what is his will. And his will is revealed to us in scripture and so I think it's up to us to consider what Scripture teaches and to come to an understanding of that and um, practice it, first of all, obediently. But then secondly, be willing to share that with others uh, who might want to hear the why of what we do. Why do you do that? Why do you believe baptism is a part of that response of faith? Uh, why do you believe? that singing should be done uh, without musical accompaniment of instrumental music in the worship assembly of the church. I think in every other place um, that uh, instrumental music is a wonderful thing added to, I love contemporary Christian music, listen to contemporary Christian radio, uh, my favorite artists, Twyla Paris, Lauren Daigle, um, 
just incredible. Uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman, uh, wonderful. Um, but because of what I understand the scriptures to teach in the in the environment and the context of the worship assembly, um, then that that's just not authorized. God calls us to sing uh, with the spirit and with the understanding in First Corinthians 14. Um, and so again, a word or two about singing. That's the context of the worship assembly. You say, but Bill, what about the Old Testament? It's full of examples calling us in worship uh, to sing. And David practiced that. Well, the key there is, is that it's the Old Testament. Sure, of course they did that. They also sacrificed animals and worshiped on Saturday, not Sunday, because it was the Sabbath. They held those special priests, uh, those special festivals, such as Passover and the tabernacles and all of that. They made pilgrimages to Jerusalem. They worshiped at the temple or in the synagogue. We don't do those things because they're commanded in the in the Old Testament and not in the New. Uh, we live by a different covenant. And so as much as I think that it's certainly clear that they were justified in using a harp or horns or whatever it was, symbols even as Psalm 150 says in a great crescendo psalm, that builds up to that ultimate uh, ending. Uh, I think that's wonderful and beautiful, but that's, again, that's Old Testament worship. They had a different priesthood. They had a different worship day. Uh, they had different uh, commandments uh, to a degree concerning worship and um, uh, a different uh, high priest. And Hebrews makes a very big case uh, that we are called to live under the new covenant. Uh, and not the old. So I, I get that it was certainly sanct, uh, sanctioned in the Old Testament, but I don't believe that it's sanctioned in the New Testament. Um, we have good biblical theology behind our practice of a cappella, non-instrumental singing in the worship assembly. I've read you those scriptures uh, that, that it seems to be very clear to me that they're called upon to sing. Uh, but then when you move from that biblical theology and foundation and you try to um, uh, consider that in light of the historical study, then the case becomes even stronger uh, because the historical foundation is very strong. Dr. Cliff uh, Gaines of Harding University shared some uh, uh, thoughts and some facts about uh, congregational singing in a lectureship a few years ago at Harding in Arkansas. And um, here's some of the history. The Roman Church, what we call the Roman Catholic Church, began to use instruments in worship only about 800 years ago. So around the 13th or 14th centuries is when uh, they began using instruments uh, in worship assemblies uh, in, a, in a prevalent way. That's a long time before that happened, 800 years. Um, not There was not full approval of instrumental music in worship in the Roman church, even for a few centuries after that, not until the 1600s, according to Dr. Gainus. Uh, instruments were not approved by many of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, John Calvin was very uncomfortable and had um, Martin Luther was more open to instrumental music in worship, but John Calvin, not nearly as much. Uh, Zwingli, even less, and, and others as well. Uh, instruments were not used by most Protestant churches uh, prevalently until the 19th century, until the 1800s. And there are other religious groups today besides just Churches of Christ that still reject 
the instrument in worship, such as the Orthodox Church, uh, Moravian churches, which were prevalent when North Carolina, where we used to live, and Reformed Presbyterians, just to name a few. And so churches of Christ are not the only ones. And uh, really using instruments of worship, uh, instruments of music in worship is uh, not something that's been done since the church began. And it's interesting to me that in the first century, especially when you're looking, reading through the pages of scripture and, and studying history, and you realize that they didn't use instruments of music in their worship in the first century, in biblical times, uh, when the church was established, I think we can, fig can consider that to be something quite surprising and unusual because in the Greek culture and in the Jewish culture, they were very comfortable with using instruments of music in worship. It was not something that they weren't used to. It's not something that would have been a surprise. In fact, it's a bit surprising to me from a biblical and historical perspective that they didn't use instrumental music in their worship. And yet, of church history. And I, and I think that's significant. Is it authoritative? No, but it does, um, it does add credibility to that understanding of the authoritative biblical teaching, which I believe, again, I believe is that uh, the, the first century church call, was called to sing together their praises to God in their worship services. And that seems to be what they did. And that's what I believe, even though we're separated by different cultures, different times, different continents, uh, 2,000 years, I, I believe that there's still that call for us to do that same thing um, today. The songs may sound quite a bit different, uh, but when you come to our church at West Irwin Church of Christ and you come on a Sunday, you will be encouraged by uh, wonderful in, uh, acapella singing. Uh, with uh, uh, people gathered together to sing praises uh, to our God. I want to look at a couple of scriptures while we just have a minute before I finish up and um, and then make some conclusions. Uh, but in, in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, there is this passage that talks about peace, that actually calls us to be at peace with one another, even though we have different gifts. Um, other places talk about being at peace with each other, even though there are different beliefs, and I think we can have that too. Um, but I do believe that Ephesians 4 talks, calls us to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that means that there's going to be some times when we have to confront teaching that we don't believe is biblical. And Ephesians 4 talks about that. Listen to what it says in Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. So deceitful scheming, um, being taken back and forth by the whatever the cultural, whichever direction the cultural wind and waves are blowing at the time. Instead, in contrast to that, being a victim of all of that, being enslaved to all of those things rather than to God's inspired word, Instead, verse 15 says, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, which are all very different, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. 
So obviously, I think the key is that verse 15, speaking the truth in love. I think we're called upon to study, to find out what the truth is. And we can only find that, I believe, in the inspired and authoritative word of God. Uh, and try to understand what that is and how that applies to us today. And then practice that, live by it obediently, and be willing to, to share that. But in every case, speaking that truth needs to be done in love. Many times that's where we have failed and we have not acknowledged our own humanity that we can be wrong. We've not acknowledged our own limitations that we don't have supernatural knowledge like God does. Um, and so we acknowledge those things on the front end. However, again, that doesn't give us permission to not consider these things at all. It doesn't give us permission to not consider these things as being very much of critical importance in our relationship with God. It just says that we study them, we try to figure out what it says and how it applies to us, and we do that. And when called upon, we're willing to share that. But when we do, we always share that in humility and in love. Second uh, uh, Peter chapter 3 has a great passage that we're very familiar with. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, that's 2 Peter 3 verse 18. But I think when you read that along with the verse before it, verse 17, which talks about false teachers, it helps us to understand where Peter is coming from. 2 Peter 3, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. So how is it that we can avoid being carried away by the error of lawless people and false teachers, as we might say? Well, the answer to doing that in Ephesians 4 is speaking the truth in love. The answer to doing that in 2 Peter 3, verse 18, is growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think primarily, uh, and people who are here at West Urban have heard me say this from the pulpit, I think we are typically pretty good at one of those two, either growing in the grace of God and being open and accepting and forgiving and all of that, all good, but not so good at growing in knowledge and understanding of what God's will is through scripture. Or we're really good at Bible study and coming to convictions and standing by them, but we're not so good at doing that in a spirit of love and grace. Scripture is adamant. I believe Jesus was killed because he refused to budge on either of these, grace or knowledge. He came uh, bringing grace and truth, John 1 says. And if he had just devoted himself to one or the other, he probably would have been okay. Because if he had devoted himself simply to knowledge or truth, the Pharisees would have loved him and they would have called the crowds off. And if he would have come just preaching mercy and grace and not really caring what people believed or whether or not they uh, obeyed his will and obeyed his teaching, uh, then the people would have been all about it and they would have never screamed for his blood. But what Jesus did is he said, uh, I have come uh, full of grace and truth. Uh, he calls on his people, his followers, to grow in grace and knowledge and not just one or the other. And so I think it's important for us to figure out what the Bible teaches as best we can. 
And I think it's important for us to live obediently to that, first of all. But then secondly, I think it's important for us to be willing to share that, be willing to speak that truth as we understand it, but always speak it in a spirit of love and grace. I think we can do that. And I think people are okay with that. I think people are okay with us having strong convictions and being able to point to the scriptures and say, this is why I believe what I believe. And be willing to do that in a way that says, look, I don't know if you're going to accept this or not, but this is what I believe the Bible teaches. And I'm not God. Um, God will ultimately judge people and he will judge them based on how they have responded in their hearts to his will. But I do believe that his will can only be found in an objective, authoritative way in the Bible, in the written word of God. If we get away from that, then ultimately we are allowing ourselves to, to look to some subjective um, cultural trend uh, instead of the inspired word of God. And I think that applies to our worship as well, including our worship musically. And I believe scripture teaches that we worship God with vocal music, a cappella. In fact, the term, the Latin term itself means in the manner of the church. Why? Because historically, that's how the church worshiped in song. It's singing, making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Uh, some of us who use this passage to speak out the loudest against instrumental music, are we actually doing what Colossians 3 verse 16 says? Are we actually singing and uh, making melody with our hearts to the Lord? Are we actually letting that message of Christ dwell among us, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in our, song, in our hearts? Are we singing that way with gratitude, with joy? Um, you know, some might say, I really don't like to sing. Well, it's kind of like the guy who says, you know, I really don't like grape juice. So I think I'm going to skip communion for the rest of my life. Well, you sing from your heart. Uh, you partake of the communion, whether grape juice is your favorite or not. Uh, even though the cracker doesn't have peanut butter on it, you still do that. Why? Because it's, it's the body of Christ. It's the blood of Christ. It connects us with the death Uh, some might say, you know, I really don't like to read, so I'm not going to consider That's just not going to work. That's where we find God's will and God's word. And in the same way, uh, I, we're called upon to sing from our heart psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Uh, here's some dialogue that you've never heard from Acts 16 when Paul and Silas were singing in that jail I spoke of earlier. Paul. Silas, why aren't you singing? We sang that one the last two times we've been in jail. Okay, Paul says, you start one. And so he does. Brother Paul, why aren't you singing? Well, I don't like those new songs. Why do we have to sing new songs anyway? And then you get to the jailer. Hey, you guys sing horribly. Maybe you better stick to just preaching. <laughs> Luke doesn't record any of that dialogue, does he? Why? Because it didn't happen. They, none of those things mattered. What mattered was that Jesus was Lord and he was going to see them through this and he had forgiven them of all their sins. And in spite of the beatings and the floggings and the imprisonment, they were going to sing songs of joy and gratitude to the Lord that they loved so much. We should too. 
We should too. Are we singing because we want to join in with the rest of creation to praise our creator? Are we singing because we're so grateful and amazed that our Savior gave his life for us? James 5, again, going back to that verse that says, Is anyone happy? Let them sing. I love that old song. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. His eye is on the sparrow. And I know, I know, he watches over me. Colossians 3, verse 16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts to the Lord. Amen.